Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. We are in for a big surprise um, for this session. Uh, The surprise, in a sense, is a good thing, in large part because uh, this podcast will be our uh, final one um, on founding rivals Madison versus Monroe, the Bill of Rights, and the election that saved the nation by Chris DeRose. Hard to believe uh, since... Last month, I want to say, uh, either late September or the start of uh, October that we've uh, been covering um, this um, book, but it has been a very uh, successful journey in learning how both James Madison and James Monroe rose from honest, um, humble uh, backgrounds to becoming successful um, men not just by means of occupation, but how they rose to um, success. And success in their day was holding more than one uh, position. But how they went about attaining their successes is remarkable unto itself. It is fair to say that both Jameses, or should I say Madison and Monroe, even though when they were born, uh, they were born in what was known as colonial America, they uh, were, they lived um, at a time when they saw lots of rapid change in the early years of their upbringing. Madison being born before the storm, meaning the French and Indian War. James Monroe was born after the storm began with the French and Indian War. Uh, but both men uh, lived to see um, numerous um, Numerous things happened. They both were born in colonial America when they were uh, governed under a a system of monarchy to where they uh, saw the inevitable happen, being declaring um, independence or separation from England that led to independence. But both men also saw their young nation struggle severely even after we had finally won our independence from England on the battlefield. So what this uh, podcast or last podcast of this uh, book, Founding Rivals, we will be discussing is the election between these two men and not just the so much the election and who emerges victorious, but where these two men will go once the election has been decided, and how the legacy of one one election alone would either make or break for our nation's um, existence as a republic. So, our first lead-off bonus question for our um, last podcast on founding rivals will be the following. What outing or let alone event, was deemed essential for both men's campaign schedules, or what I like to refer to as both James's campaign schedule. That answer is the following. Court days. Now, why are court days, or let alone a court day, why is that deemed essential? Well, a court day was one of those days that was um, an official set day of the month to where each county had the power to determine a date, 
that would revolve around lawyers and judges presiding over civil and criminal cases. So we're not bringing the whole town in, folks, just to watch a court trial. Now, that's not to say that even court cases alone did bring in uh, crowds from the communities, and there's nothing wrong with that. After all, even court trials alone could teach good lessons to the communities, big and small. But what, the, but what court day itself also allowed for was, um, it, it basically was like, um, not like an open house, but an, a, a day where a variety of festivities occurred within the community and the festivities ranged from um, markets to county fairs. So in other words, court day was more than just um, hearing and, um, and, and presiding over cases. People came to town, and, and not, by not just so much coming to town, um, a, a, an array of events came about that, um, that uh, allowed for people to... Um, to get to know one another better, it allowed for people to um, to share um, thoughts, to um, to just basically express new ideas, to basically get the word out about something that maybe didn't exist beforehand. It was almost like a um, like a carnival day of sorts. Let's put it this way. Of course, there's no rides back then, but this is a way to get people to come out and. Um, and have a day of um, of relaxation, but a day of um, of uh, doing uh, various good deeds in your community. So basically, court day wasn't confined to just litigation affairs. To sum it up, now another bonus question to look at is the or to consider is the following: What advantage on court day greatly benefited both Jameses? The ability to address a mass number of voters. You know, it's one thing to meet people, but if you're a candidate running for political office on a large scale, like in this case for the United States House, United States House of Representatives, and you know that the fifth district has eight counties, what a great way to meet people from all around. Now, we must remember even in 1789 standard. 1789 um, timeline, um, most people are lucky if they can get from point A to point B in uh, five or ten miles when, the, say, the average distance might be, say, 20 miles at best. Um, someone might be lucky if they can get to their destination in a five to ten mile radius. But court day is one of those days where where uh, candidates have the opportunity to uh, to appeal to large masses of uh, people, or let alone voters who are undecided and and want to know who the right candidate is for um, for their best um, voting conscience. And what's even better about court day for uh, candidates like Madison and Monroe is that when they did debate. <laughs> Their debates lasted longer to where neither one of them had to deal with 30-second or one-minute responses. So both men could debate 
they could have the each man could have could take turns on the podium for debating on a subject for 30 to 45 minutes before letting the next candidate have a turn to um, address what he thinks um, is the best uh, approach to a matter uh, concerning the citizens. So when you have eight counties in the fifth district, you are definitely assured of really um, getting to win over the hearts of those who, who still remain undecided at the last minute. Now on February 2nd, 1789, is the day that at this day and time is referred to as Election Day. Now we, we all have to remember, folks, even when the Constitution was first um, established and, and signed by the, our forefathers or the framers who signed it, there was nothing in the books that stated that elections were to be held the first Tuesday after the first Monday in November. So we're doing things a little bit differently. So February at this time, and so on February 2nd of 1789, Election Day uh, takes place, and it is coordinated by the county sheriffs whom, who are running the show. They appoint clerks below them for assistance. After all, the sheriffs alone can't do the entire work, but that's why they have clerks below them who can, um, who can uh, do tasks that uh, will take the burden off of the sheriffs. Now, as for the voters, how do the voters go about um, voting? Well, remember, folks, we don't have the same kind of voting machines or let alone voter set up like we do today when going to the polls to vote. So voters would enter the courthouse and they would approach the sheriff or the clerk by going up and announcing their vote for Congress. And if John Smith went up and announced to um, Mr. Jones, Sheriff Jones rather, that he was voting for James Madison, then Sheriff Jones would um, would write down in the poll book whom um, whom uh, that fellow gentleman requested to vote for. Was there bad weather? Well, I know that sounds like an odd question, but let me ask you this. February, cold, uh, freezing temperatures, you got snow, freezing rain to deal with, Icy roads, perhaps? Yes, there was bad weather. So, you know, think about it. In today's time, usually election day should last one day. But we have found in our most recent elections in the United States with the president and in some cases with Senate elections, that has not happened. That has proven to be opposite. And that's for a variety of reasons. But for this election... In early February 1789, some sheriffs went as far as keeping the polls open for up to three days. Now, we must remember, folks, too, that these were all for legit reasons. You know, we don't have modern-day vehicles like cars in 1789 to get us around from point A to point B. So, therefore, I think it's fair and smart that uh, that the uh, sheriffs would be kind enough to keep the polls open just for for an extra couple of days um, so that uh, 
voters have the opportunity to vote and still be able to say that they got to cast their uh, ballot. Extending the number of days to three enabled many voters to participate. As I said a moment ago, yes, it allowed these people to vote. Otherwise, if not, they would not have been able to have, uh, to have done so. We might have even, that could have even possibly been seen as disenfran disenfranchisement or being disenfranchised, let alone. Here's another bonus question right here. Why is secret ballot so essential? Well, secret ballot makes voter intimidation all the more difficult by enabling people to freely exercise their vote without informing outsiders of their personal choices. Well, you know, when we go to vote, I mean, it should be a, a private thing as well, too. You know, there's nothing wrong with telling someone who you might have voted for, but at the same time, what if it was someone you didn't trust, or let alone maybe somebody you didn't know, or say if it was someone whom you uh, worked with in a, in a union? Uh, I will admit this, that uh, history has shown that unions, and I don't mean this the wrong way, but even unions themselves um, would censure employees for not voting necessarily for the right candidate. So voting is something that is very personal to many people, but it should not have to come at the expense of being intimidated just to vote for someone whom you think is the right fit when someone else would think vice versa. Here's a bonus question right here. Was election fraud taken very seriously in, in the late 18th century? Oh, absolutely, yes. Any official engaged with some form of tampering faced a stiff punishment with a fine of 200 pounds per offense. So basically the maximum fine was up to 200 pounds, depending on the severity of the offense. But the only one form of... Um, voter tampering that I could think of in the late 18th century would have been for a sheriff to have um, purposely um, misconstrued the tally marks on uh, paper or in his uh, poll book. In other words, deliberately cross out X amount of um, uh, tally checks to um, rig an election to where John Smith ended up receiving someone else's votes when he ne when those votes never went to him to begin with. So, yes, election fraud was taken very seriously. Now, on February 10th of 1789, the sheriffs from all eight counties, being Albemarle, Culpeper, Louisa, Orange, Amherst, Fluvanna, Goochland, and Spotsylvania, all convened in Albemarle County to, certi to certify the results. These officials were engaging in a first, something that was considered to be a first, I should say. They were certifying the results of the first election to Congress. So basically for these men, these sheriffs rather, I should say, they don't want to do anything that, that's going to backfire on them. 
So therefore, they all ought to have enough smarts not to engage in anything that would promote election fraud. After all, if they don't do their part right, then they are putting the nation's security at risk, let alone perhaps the Constitution's security at risk as well. Remember, folks, from an earlier podcast about how if the um, anti-federalists did not um, get the support they deserved, or let alone those who had been um, excluded from years past being uh, religious dissenters of Baptist and Lutheran faith in Virginia, if they did not get the uh, recognition they deserved, then there would have been all the more reason for those whom were against the Constitution to go about calling on for a second uh, convention. It should be worth pointing out that the um, sheriffs were paid 10 shillings for the day of travel and 3 pence per mile. So remember, folks, the sheriffs aren't uh, volunteering. This is paid work. But rightfully so, that this ought to be paid work because they are making sacrifice themselves. Given there were eight counties in the 5th District, did either one of the Jameses win more than four counties? Well, it turns out that both men won four counties respectively. Which counties did James Madison win? He won Albemarle, Culpeper, Louisa, and Orange. Interesting to note that he won Albemarle being the same county where Thomas Jefferson lived. As for James Monroe, he would win Amherst, Fluvanna, Goochland, and Spotsylvania. It turns out that uh, James Madison would end up winning this election by a differential of 336 votes. Madison won, got 1,308 votes. 972 went to James Monroe. I call that a very close election. There was no landslide. Of course, we have to remember the populations back then in 1789 were not the same like they are um, in most counties today. Uh, I can tell you, for example, when my folks moved to Chesterfield County, which is in um, Virginia back in 1974, there were only like 70,000 people living in the county, which at that time did seem like a lot. But in today's time, the population is well over 100,000, and uh, a lot of things have changed in Chesterfield County within the last 45 years, to say the least. Now, Madison's proposals, or let alone James Madison's proposals behind advocating religious freedom to supporting new amendments were considered all the more essential in his victory. And because of that, those dividends paid off where Baptists and other religious dissenting groups led the, um, led the way in supporting his uh, proposals for um, greater uh, religious freedom to all of those dissenting groups or minority sects who had um, endured so much um, in what do you call it, religious intolerance and oppression for such a long period of time. Here's another bonus question for you all. Uh, was George Washington enthralled by James Madison's emerging 
victorious in his election. Yes, he commended Madison for not betraying those whom had left whom whom had been left behind for for so long. But Washington went as far as giving James Madison a draft of his first message to Congress and wanted and wanted Madison's direct assistance. So what I clearly remember was from the first podcast that we did that we covered on founding rivals. Krista Rose did talk about how James Madison went about writing George Washington's speech to Congress, his first formal speech after being sworn in as president to Congress. So how ironic from that first podcast I talked to you all on Founding Rivals, here we will be talking about some of the same things. But how we got to 1789 just didn't happen overnight. So many other sacrifices were made prior to Washington's being sworn in as president on April 30th of 1789, as well as James Madison's election uh, victory from February 2nd of 1789. Bringing the past to the present. When you forge those two together, the end results... In this particular, um, in these particular circumstances, have far more greater significance, or let alone have far greater relevant meaning, compared to what the opposite could have brought. Not just so much, say, James Madison losing, but knowing that the Constitution that was um, crafted in Philadelphia could have. Um, could have been obliterated altogether only for a second convention to have taken its place. Would Madison become leery of what he could expect to encounter in the upcoming First Congress? Yes, he had an inclination or inclination or let alone a hunch that conflict amongst Federalists and Anti-Federalists would be inevitable but if gone unchecked, tensions would rise on sectional lines, north and south. And, we, and as I mentioned from the previous night's podcast, the northern economies revolved um, around manufacturing, um, around um, you know, the mercantile industry. They were far more different than the economy of the south, which was an, an agrarian economy, that revolved around uh, plantations. Now, where would the first Congress uh, convene in New York? In a place known as City Hall. Well, remember folks, we don't have such a thing as Capitol Hill, but of course that doesn't come until after Washington, D.C. has been declared as the... uh, new nation's capital, but that won't be for at least another 11 years. What events can be attributed to Madison's recent election success in the 5th District? Well, we can trace his um, past successes that led up to 1789 based on the following events. The Virginia Convention, or let alone, I should say, the 5th Virginia Convention of 1776, from the Revolutionary War 
to serving in the Confederation Congress, Virginia House of Delegates, to the Ratification Convention in Virginia that ratified the U.S. Constitution, as well as conventions in Annapolis, being the Annapolis Convention of 1786, which was the precursor to the Constitutional Convention gathering in Philadelphia in 1787. As I said earlier, James Madison's success was not something that just happened accidentally. It was success that was brought on from being a part of other key events that over time bore extreme significance in his uh, leadership, especially within the Constitutional Convention, to winning the seat in the 5th Congressional District. Was James Madison the leading member of the first House of Representatives? Yes. And it's a very easy answer. He had an, he had an impeccable record. And another word for impeccable basically means significant, numerous. So he had an impeccable record for public service. But he also had a very brilliant mind when it came to all the current issues facing the new republic. He wasn't so much a legislator, folks. He really was, in a sense, like his own uh, presidential advisor. It's a shame that he couldn't have had a side job as being presidential advisor to George Washington. The guy um, really was a master of thought. He really was a master of uh, seeing the bigger scope of, of things, big and small not just for what they stood for in the present but how they would but how the matters themselves would go forward in the future if uh, if they went in the right direction and if he saw that they weren't going in the right right direction he didn't sit back and say well I'm going to let someone else take care of that he always was willing to give his two cents on whatever was necessary to have been addressed now, one major issue that James Madison faced, I mean, there, there were a multitude of issues, but one in particular was the national debt. Does anybody want to know how big the national debt was in 1789? It wasn't in the trillions like it is today. The figure stood between 40 and $60 million, but um, Chris DeRose uh, notes, noted it as $54 million. So how much of that money do you think was owed to foreign governments? I'll give you a number between uh, 10 and 20 million, 12. So what does James Madison propose doing that will help that will help that will gradually help modify the problem? He knows it can't go away overnight, but he wants to do whatever it takes to modify the problem. In phases. Well, one plan he had was to implement an impost, or uh, what was referred to as a levy, or let alone tax, that would generate close to $3 million, which would go towards funding the essential government uh, functions of operation on a day-by-day basis. In other words, meet the most basic um, functions, that is, paying... um, paying the smallest amount of bills, 
including payments on debt. So, hey, $3 million is better than no um, money available. So my next bonus question to you all is the following. Was there a side to Madison? And this is a critical bonus question, by the way. Was there a side to Madison who believed taxes were an evil? Well, you know, Madison is a firm believer, folks, in the power of taxation. But, you know, I I do believe it is also safe to say that those who favor power of taxation and who know that it's right probably know that there's a side to this um, subject that um, may not always be um, what, what they want to go about doing, but it is something that they know in the long run will have uh, greater um, significance down the road if it means um, having more of a surplus or let alone a, a larger revenue um, for other projects where money is um, needed um, for investments. So, yes, uh, James Madison, um, there was a side to Madison who did believe that taxes were an evil. However, he, he had enough smarts to understand that, that greater evils, if, the, if greater evils took place, would result in the nation's failure to protect people's personal liberties as well as financial duties. So in other words, you can disagree all you want that you don't want to um, either raise taxes on people or let alone or let alone impose taxes that would uh, generate uh, revenue, even if it means um, raising them to a gargantuan number that um, might um, might not um, please others. But for James Madison, his objective is to not please people. His objective is to ensure that government functions. And no matter how big or small the hurdles the government faces, for James Madison, it's about making sure that government can uh, prevail even in its, um, what do you call it, even in its um, weakest moment. So for James Madison, what he realizes here is this. If the young republic did not meet its duties, then existing debts would be passed down to future generations. And how true that is. I mean, you look at our national debt in the United States today. I don't even want to know where it's at in the trillions, but it's a very, very um, dangerous um, level. And if nothing gets done to resolve the national debt, anytime soon, within the next five or ten years, it will be passed down to future generations. You know, debt itself is not always a bad thing, but if debt goes unchecked and, un- and, and it's allowed to spiral out of control, then a lot of um, factors can come into play as to um, who is really responsible for the problems. But that's for a whole nother uh, discussion on a whole nother topic for another time. But basically, the young republic and its leaders needed to set an example for how to lead when the going gets tough. 
Remember the saying, when the going gets tough, the tough get going? So in other words, for Madison, people need to put aside their personal differences. They need to find ways to, to compromise to ensure that progress benefit, benefiting the people comes first. So there you have it, folks. Yes, taxing uh, people or let alone um, imposing taxes is not fun. But sometimes you have to do unpleasant things in life if you want to get meaningful results. It may, the results may not happen overnight, but they will happen over time. But if you don't do them, then you're going to uh, look back and regret that, um, that an opportunity was missed. It's like the old saying, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't. So for James Madison, this is really a case of, of, of a classic case of double-edged sword. You know, raising taxes or imposing taxes will either work for us. Yes, it could work against us, but if we don't try, we'll never know what the end outcome's going to bring. Now, on May 4th of 1789, Madison himself will first mention the amendment topic to Congress. In other words, he's going to go before the floor to, to address to both parties why amendments to the Constitution are essential. And it's not just an essential necessity, but he is also addressing the concerns of the Anti-Federalists. Now, does everything get resolved on this date? No. But Madison makes it clear that the topic itself will be readdressed come June 8th. I'm sure some of you all are wondering, is James Madison the House Majority Leader in the House of Representatives? He's actually not, and what what and what's interesting to point out, I learned this some years back when I was in college. It wasn't until the turn of the 20th century that the House of Representatives, and the same might be said for the Senate, it wasn't until the turn of the 20th century that leadership titles really began to have a greater um, significant impact. So when our when the Congress was first established in 1789, nobody had the role of majority leader, minority leader, um, minority or majority whip. You were just uh, average Joe. And is that all right? Oh, I think it was fine. Because here's another example of where the framers of our Constitution were very fearful of titles. That's why they um, outlawed um, anyone in the, in, the, in the United States who served in Congress to be referred to as uh, an earl or as a uh, duke. Um, any, what do you call it, title of uh, English nobility that, um, that was just found to be uh, inappropriate. And there's a reason for that. You know, we just fought, we it wasn't that long ago that we fought a war to keep a tyrant out of our country. He wasn't in our country, but he was a tyrant living 3,000 miles away, um, imposing his unnecessary will upon the American people. 
along with an institution being Parliament that passed numerous pieces of legislation without our consent, most notably the Stamp Act, taxation without representation, the Townshend duties that placed imports, or not imports, placed um, duties on lead, tea, paint, glass, all of that stuff done without our consent. So basically, if we want to have a government that is for the people and by the people, it doesn't need to be one where people who would be given um, ranks, ranks like Earl, um, Duke, anything that would re resemble that of a uh, monarchy system. So, um, what issues did Congress focus greatly on? Here's a bonus, and this is a bonus question. Uh, what issues did Congress focus greatly on after George Washington had been sworn in as our new um, executive, or let alone head executive? The issues that were brought before Congress were oaths of office, immigration policy to establishing a judiciary system, and last but not least, determining how George Washington ought to be addressed. <laughs> the Senate, <laughs> I should note here, proposed addressing Washington as His Highness to President of the United States to protector of their liberties. And other proposals were uh, His Majesty, His Excellency. Well, Majesty is associated with Parliament. Excellency... Um, when I tend to think of His Excellency or Your Excellency, I think of uh, the Catholic Church. But I think it was more fitting that uh, George Washington be referred to as uh, the President. Because through Madison's um, leadership, title of President of the United States ought to supersede everything else. Now here we go with a Bill of Rights. Were most Federalists concerned about a Bill of Rights? No. Many leaders within the party focused on governmental setup instead of securing people's personal liberties. Why so? Well, many Federalists saw amending the Constitution as a distraction from issues that were far more pressing. Well, think about it. Issues to, in their eyes that were far more pressing were immigration policy to establishing a judiciary system and to naming um, various um, cabinet departments. And we must remember in 1789, the departments that um, exist are Department of State, Department of Treasury. You have the Attorney General, but it's not known as the Department of Justice. You have a Secretary of War, so there's no Department of Defense like we know today. But I can tell you this, the Secretary of State was far more powerful than the Vice President. And we have to remember, folks, for many years the President of the United States did not travel overseas. It was the Secretary of State that did all that work for the President. Here's a bonus question right here. Which personal freedom was sacred to James Madison? I'll give you some choices. 
was it um, the freedom to be, uh, or not so much the freedom, was it the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures? Was it the right to be free from un, from uh, unusual, was it the right to be free from cruel and unusual punishment or freedom of religion? Oh, the answer is very obvious, freedom of religion. But it should be a no-brainer because he had just won an election with broad support from religious dissenters, those who had been um, deliberately excluded because, due to religious intolerance, as well as uh, facing paramount um, means of um, religious discrimination and persecution. Without those religious dissenters, I'm not sure if Madison could have won. Would Madison confront people in his own party whom opposed a Bill of Rights? Yes. He actually had enough courage, which was wonderful, to be able to take a stand from within and let several members of his own party know how he truly felt. Madison confronted men like James Jackson of Georgia, and, he, and he's an interesting fellow. James Jackson of Georgia felt that people's fears alone could be resolved through legislation by itself without resorting to a convention or a debate on amendments that could last an eternity. So in his eyes, legislation alone was a better fixer-upper. In other words, it was a better form of patchwork to a problem that should be resolved in a timely manner, but done so without having to resort to amendments. Well, the legislation part of this I find unique because yes, you could pass a bill. You could pass a bill, and the president could sign it into law, um, stating that that people's rights to free religion cannot be uh, trampled upon, uh, regardless of where they live. All of that sounds great, but the problem is that what if the bill itself was revisited? Five, year, five to ten years after it was signed into law? And what if you had people questioning the um, authenticity or validity of the bill and wanted to challenge it either in court or let alone scrap the whole bill and say, hey, we don't believe that certain sects and religious sects in Virginia and North Carolina ought to have the same level of religious freedom as, say, um, those who adhere to the Episcopal uh, Church in Virginia do. So the bottom line is, for the religious dissenters in Virginia, and those who are advocating religious freedom, there needs to be something put into play permanently in the Constitution that basically says that the Constitution, or let alone Congress, shall make no laws um, abridging one's right to freedom of religion without... Um, without um, without requiring that church and state go hand-in-hand in overseeing the daily affairs of uh, religious practices. Remember, uh, folks, the Virginia Statutes of Religious Freedom outlawed church and state from being allowed to um, work together one-on-one, -on -one, not just work together one-on-one, -on -one, but to meddle in one another's affairs as to how they ought to be running their um, their business based upon the influence of the other uh, party. 
they basically need to be separate. They are important entities, but if they interfere in one another's lives, uh, then nothing can be resolved, or let alone nothing can function properly. And not, we're just not talking about community-wise. We're talking about state and federal. But on the other hand, freedom of religion, as noted in the Constitution, is a federal right. What people often forget is that the Bill of Rights are actually federal rights, not state rights. But at the same time, states must recognize the Bill of Rights because the Bill of Rights do supersede the state laws. Another um, individual whom James Madison had an uphill battle with was Roger Sherman of Connecticut. And of course, Roger Sherman is one of, was one of six men who signed the U.S. Constitution that were holdovers from the Declaration of Independence. Roger Sherman is probably close to 70 years old by the time uh, the first Congress convenes. But nonetheless, he is still considered a hero. After all, if he had not come up with that great compromise where uh, representation was based on population and that each state got two um, two senators regardless of its size, I'm not even sure if we would have made it to this point in our nation's history. So, as for Roger Sherman, he wanted the government to go into effect as quickly as possible. As it was outlined in the Constitution, he wanted national affairs to take full precedent instead of catering to a specific concern involving an individual sector of society. So for Roger Sherman, you know, he wants what's best for the American people. But what he's really worried about is how much time is it how much time do we need to spend resolving an issue that's only going to cater to a certain sector of society who had already faced uh, numerous bouts of um, religious discrimination when in fact there have been a majority of people in the country who did not have to endure any form of religious uh, discrimination prior to either going to war with England or let alone in the aftermath of the war itself ending and leading up to the Constitutional Convention itself. So for Roger Sherman, he... I'm sure he probably already knows that there are a handful of other issues like establishing a national judiciary that ought to take precedent over catering to the concerns of an individual um, sector of society. In this case, when I think of the individual individual sector of society, it's really about the Baptists and the Lutherans and other various um, religious minorities in Virginia who had suffered greatly. And I think the reason why many in Virginia suffered greatly, it wasn't so much alone because of the Anglican Church and its presence for years and having to pay taxes, but it's also because Virginia as a whole was the largest of the 13 states, and for a long time the Anglican Church controlled a swath or let alone a vast amount of land in Virginia to where no matter where religious dissenters lived in Virginia, they never really felt like they were accounted for because they did not measure up as being worthy to those who who adhered to the Church of England 
but yet those who had, had adhered to the Church of England were, a, were an elite minority. So here again is a double-edged sword where the majority of Virginians are of the non-Anglican faith, but only the um, elite 1-2% to who are some of the richest landowners in Virginia adhere to the Anglican church, but yet all of the power is concentrated into the hands of a few. This could be a great example of an, of an aristocracy. The, the landed gentry or the Virginia aristocrats. So I can see here where catering to an individual sector of society, being those who were um, denied the proper religious freedoms in Virginia, were probably far more impacted than, say, uh, people living in, in Roger Sherman's um, home state of Connecticut. Madison's colleagues from within his own party, a.k.a. the Federalists, would become the major hurdle in passing the Bill of Rights. And how true. Now, for James Madison, he's, he's going to have to work even harder to convince those that, hey, these Bill of Rights are essential. Who will he have as an ally? And he is a Virginian. His name is John Page. And the reason why he's an important figure is because he, too, is a Federalist, and he happened to support Madison's Bill of Rights proposals. Well, there again, for Madison right here, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. He might be making some headways. John Page himself knew just how critical Madison's Bill of Rights agenda was, and if it wasn't passed by Congress... Here again, folks, the Anti-Federalists would go about calling for a new constitutional convention with two-thirds of the state legislature's approval. Page's own remarks were heard by many other Federalists. And after what Page had said, many Federalists now woke, finally woke up and smelled the coffee. In other words, they finally realized that the Bill of Rights proposals implemented on Madison's behalf were serious to where if this matter didn't get resolved, then the public would self then the Republic would self-destruct. It would cease to exist. So moving forward with the Bill of Rights agenda would also help persuade North Carolina and Rhode Island, who were the two holdouts to re they were still the two holdouts left, but, but, but now that we have moved in the right direction with the Bill of Rights agenda, we are now going to hope that North Carolina and Rhode Island will rejoin the discussion on supporting or backing the ratification of the Constitution. So in August of 1789, the first rounds of major debate resume on Madison's amendment, amendments. So we've gone from simple talk to mid-level talks now to full-scale, wide-range debate on, um, on adding um, amendments to the Constitution. The debates themselves were taking, that were taking place advocated uh, protection from further or let alone potential government encroachment. And for many of these legislators debating, whether it was Federalist or Anti-Federalist, 
but it might be safe to say in the case of Federalists, many Federalists wanted, um, feared a government encroachment on the grounds of church profile within their home states. They knew that church and state alone should be, that, that both church and state should be separate entities from one another, but there were many um, individuals who represented various uh, states within the uh, 13 states. Many of these uh, legislators uh, saw, still saw churches as uh, sacred institutions of hierarchy. In other words, it wasn't just going to church to pray, to listen to the sermon. But the reason why many uh, legislators still saw church as a sacred institution of hierarchy was because churches alone could help ensure communities remained intact to where everyone was on the same page. It's kind of like that old saying years ago, how church, school, and home were always on the same page. And when I look at society now, sadly, church, school, and home are not on the same page like they used to be uh, years ago. It's sad. It doesn't make it right that it's happened, but if churches were not viewed as sacred institutions during this time, then how could there be any true form of proper hierarchy? Think about it. There has to be some kind of institution that can maintain order outside of government. The best institution that can do this is a church. A home can play its part with the family. Institutions of higher learning can do the same thing too. But if you don't have a proper nucleus of church, school, and home all on the same page, then the nucleus itself cannot exist. Another bonus question to... uh, to consider is the following. Would the House of Representatives send more than 10 amendments to the states? Yes. The House ended up sending a total of 12 amendments, but only 10 would become ratified by three-fourths of the state legislatures as 1791 would come to an end. Now, I know I'm getting a little too far ahead of the game here, folks, but we must remember that the amendments that were debated on that would get sent uh, to the states for ratification was not something that just happened overnight. Each of the 13 states went about ratifying these um, the first 10 amendments through their own system of um, politicking, if that's the right word. Can any of you all name some of those first 10 amendments, or let alone... Um, some of those uh, First Amendments that fall under the Bill of Rights, I can name a handful. First Amendment being the most essential, freedom of speech, freedom of the press, the right to assemble and petition, and most important of all, freedom of religion. Second Amendment, the right to keep and bear arms. We also have uh, the Eighth Amendment. I know I'm getting a little off track, but I'm just throwing in examples. The Eighth Amendment, the right to uh, be free from cruel and unusual punishment. 
we go to the Fourth Amendment, the right to be free from unreasonable search and seizures. We also have a Third Amendment, which is the right to, um, which is uh, the prohibiting of uh, quartering soldiers into your homes. The only time that ever happened was leading up to the American Revolutionary War, when the people of Boston were forced by Parliament under the Quartering Act to um, provide shelter and clothing and a place of lodging for soldiers coming over from England. And you can imagine that many Bostonians were, were very adamantly opposed about it, and rightfully so, because there again, that was a, another piece of legislation that was, uh, that was passed by Parliament without the people's consent. So never again will, would there ever be a time in peace or war where the American people, for example, would be forced to have to quarter soldiers or let alone provide quartering for soldiers, shelter and lodging. So um, would Madison receive praise from various camps with regards to the Bill of Rights, or I should say the first, um, not so much the first 10 amendments, but for bringing amendments to the floor for debate and to have these amendments that were brought to, um, brought to a um, conclusion to send to the states, would he, would he basically get the recognition he deserved? Yes. Madison received praise from various camps, most notably Federalist, um, from a Federalist named Edmund Pendleton, then to a fellow who was an anti-Federalist named Edmund Carrington, who was ousted from within the anti-Federalist party just because he was Madison's friend. So uh, what does that tell you right there, folks? There were many in the anti-Federalist camp who liked James Madison, but yet sadly paid the ultimate price because they were friends with him. Just because, you're, just because you're a Federalist and you know someone else who's an anti-Federalist, it doesn't mean that you all don't like each other. It just means that you have differing views on matters. But this is where you would have to also learn to come together and basically learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. This is where you would have to come together and put aside your political differences to work for the common good of the American people and this is where you also have to learn to put aside differences so that you don't go around burning bridges with one another. There's another bonus question right here. Would North Carolina finally come around before 1789 came to a close in supporting Bill of Rights, which also meant ratifying Constitution? The answer is yes. A good example of this was from um, a newspaper in North Carolina known as the State Gazette of North Carolina, which candidly admitted that amendments brought before Congress would prevent further opposition from all opposing forces. So on November 21st of 1789, North Carolina became the 12th state to ratify the United States Constitution. And what was uh, significant about uh, September of 1789, two months earlier, the U.S. Supreme Court gets established. Well, we've, I think it's fair to say that 
1789 is going to turn out to be a pretty good year, given that it's our first year, first official year, under this new Republican form of government. It's not perfect, but it's moving in the right direction. We still have some hurdles to overcome, and I, if you ask me which is going to be the mo what's going to be the most important hurdle other than ensuring that the Bill of Rights that are other than the